Welcome to another edition of the South American Football Show on the World Football Index, where today we will be breaking down match day, well, it says match day eight on paper, but in essence, it was the sixth set of matches from Conmobile World Cup qualifiers, as we are set to determine the four and a half teams heading to Qatar from South America. I'm your host, Austin Miller, happy to be back in the host's chair. A big thanks to Simon and Adam for last week's. Joined on this week's show by the only returning member of the team, and that is our Ecuadorian football expert, Javier Zavala. Javier, you are the consistent presence in the midfield of this squad, apparently. Well, honestly, just to begin with, it's great having you back because it's great to have a show like, uh, sorry, a host that can actually pronounce my name. Yeah, That's there we go. go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, it's like I said last week, like no matter the result, I love uh, when a national team play. It's my favorite time of the year. So I, I enjoy sitting down with you guys, sharing some thoughts, uh, some nostalgic thoughts from the past, some review from the future. It's always a pleasure. I have great fun here. Thank you. And longtime listeners of the show will be, I don't know if they'll be pleased, Javier, but they will get you in your true form today as we will break down an Ecuador loss to Peru. So there's that to look forward to. That's what we call a tease in the business. Also joining me on this week's show, presumably sipping a mate, something to celebrate the arrival of Emi Bandia to his beloved Aston Villa, Tom Robinson. The only thing you didn't get this week, Tom, were victories for Argentina and Uruguay in World Cup qualifying. Other than that, you're probably doing pretty well. Yeah, you can't have everything in life, can you? So I'll, I'll put up with Aston Villa now being one of the main providers for this Argentina national team. Long may it continue and, and hopefully we can we can add some more players uh, along the way. So yeah, looking forward to discussing a, a bit of a mixed week for Argentina and a bit of a mixed week for, well, for a lot of uh, the nations in this this round's qualifiers. Well, let's get straight into it, guys. And I think we have to start with what was the headline result from last night, probably the most exciting game. And that was a 2-2 draw between Colombia and Argentina in Barranquilla. A result that will feel like a point one for Colombia and will certainly feel like two points lost for Argentina. Argentina 2-0 up within 10 minutes the big center back Christian Romero heading in a header within five minutes and then a tremendous goal from Paredes, an individual effort that saw him weave through the Colombian defense with a couple of nice touches to make it 2-0. And it looked as though Argentina were not only going to cruise to three points, but perhaps string together their most impressive performance in the Scaloni era. And they, they looked to build on, on those early goals as that first half went on. They couldn't quite do it, but a 2-0 lead at halftime, they looked to be comfortable Ronaldo Rueda, the new Colombia boss, made a triple change at halftime. That got his squad kind of back into the game. An interesting penalty decision from Nicolas Otamendi, uh, the goat of plenty of Argentine, Argentine moments over the past few years. Let Colombia back in the match. Muriel, sure, from the spot to make it 2-1. Argentina had plenty of chances to extend their lead, but a tremendous effort from David Ospina kept Colombia at within a goal. And that man himself, Miguel Borja, one of South America's best strikers, I say with all of those words shrouded in question marks, getting the goal for Colombia, slipping through a shot through Argentina's substitute goalkeeper. We'll get onto that in a minute. Emmy Martinez forced out of the match in the first half. And Colombia rescue a point, Tom, a 2-2 draw. It's definitely a result that leaves a very, very sour taste in Argentina. Scaloni, after the match, said that it was an undeserved draw. His team more than deserved the three points. 
on one sense, you kind of agree with him. They certainly put in the performance that should have gotten them three points. But I think you have to also kind of tip your cap to Ospina and Colombia for battling back and stealing a point for them. How would you break down this Argentina performance, Tom? Yeah, it kind of f- f- uh, followed a f- pretty familiar pattern all the way through these qualifiers in terms of, on one hand, you can look at Argentina right now and, and see the positives and say, hey, you know, they're still unbeaten um, and they've produced some better performances. But on the other hand, you can say, look, this game and arguably the last game as well were, were games that really they had enough chances to see off. And again, those individual errors um, creeping in there. The, the, they really were architects of their own downfall, which I think will be the most frustrating thing, especially at any level of football. If you're conceding a goal that late in the game, especially having had plenty of chances to to put the game to bed earlier, that's always going to feel more like a loss than, yeah, we've got a, a point away in, in Barranquilla, which is a, you know a tough place to go. So I think depending on your outlook in life, you'll probably be able to take different things from this game. But certainly, I think two of the the positives from from this game and and certainly um, this round of fixtures in general has been Cuti Romero in centre in center of defence. That bullet header was, was a brilliant way to really stamp his authority on, on a, that defence, centre of defence position that's been under scrutiny for, for quite some time. And also, um, Emmy Martinez, uh, again, I'm sure <laughs> I'll probably be accused of bias here. And, and to be honest, he didn't have loads to do before he went off, but it definitely felt like a turning point um, when Yeri Mina brutally clashed into him. Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying that with a with tongue in cheek. I think it was a pretty fair 50-50 challenge and it was just an unfortunate um, fall for Martinez and, and a bit of a concussion there, right to take him off because um, you don't you don't want to mess around with, with those kind of injuries. But almost the fact that Argentina went on to um, concede a couple of goals probably increases his reputation more through his absence than necessarily anything he, he had to do. But I do think he just does give you that solidity and confidence, you know, watching my club side improve immeasurably um, in defence with with Martinez behind them has, has been one of the best things about the last year. And I think he's capable of doing the same f- for Argentina. So both he and Romero have really strengthened their claim to, to be starters going forward for Argentina. Um, but then, you know, the negatives is on one hand, you know, you can say, oh, maybe these are fine margins, individual errors that, that, you know, they were unlucky. But at the same point, you've got to look and say, well, Scaloni's gone and picked Otamendi in the, in the centre of the fence. It's, it's been, I think, everyone looking in from the outside or, or Argentina have been saying, why are we persisting with Otamendi? He's passed it. We need to move on. And this might have been the final nail in the, in the coffin, I think, for Ot- Otamendi. It was just an absolute needless sort of elbow, um, just properly panicked when the cross came in. And, and at that point, especially right at the start of the second half, having played so well in the first half, it just let Colombia ramp up the um, the pressure um, and and get back into this game. So I th- again, it just... It just um, is is a bit of bit of bad luck, but a bit of um, you know you, you can't say Scaloni's not 
um, is, is blameless either. So it's um, from an Argentina point of view, certainly feels like dropped points. But the fact that all the other sides uh, <laughs> seem to be dropping points as well means they're still three points ahead of, of Ecuador. They're, they've got a much better points tally than they did at this stage in the last qualifying. So I think there's, I think they're still comfortable, even if they could be maybe a little bit closer to uh, Brazil and, and distancing themselves from, from the rest of the pack. But to be fair, Colombia did do very well to get back into it. And, and Ospina had a fantastic game as well. So credit to Colombia as well. I think, Tom, you kind of hit it the nail on the head there at the end. Um, individual errors cost this match for Argentina for trying to play out of the back in a situation where, you know, look, if there's still 10 minutes to go, maybe you try that. But literally in the fifth minute of five added minutes, just whack it long. Just whack it long. Get out of there. Take your three points and go. Um, and Otamendi, look, you kind of know what you get. Like you said, yeah, it's a tough break, but you've come to expect those types of plays from him in defense in an Argentina shirt. But on the other side of it, Argentina, I think, I'm not concerned of their ability to qualify for this World Cup. I think there's plenty of concerns about what happens when they get there, but that's still a long ways away. And there's a lot that can happen still um, in the next 18 months before they have to actually play the World Cup. But when you look around at what's happening on the rest of the continent, you know, Brazil, this is something we'll get on to. They're, you know, the top team in South America, and I don't think it's particularly close. But I think Argentina have kind of solidified themselves as that second place team, the kind of the lone team in tier two that you feel confident about, okay, they're going to go to the World Cup. And that's a far cry from where they were uh, in the Russia qualification cycle where they were scrapping up until the last day. So they get some credit for that. It's now the process of figuring out what's going to happen once they eventually do get to the World Cup. Javier, did you you see much of this match? What did you make of it? Certainly a point one for Colombia. Did Rueda maybe get it right, kind of throwing everything to the wind and making changes in the second half? Honestly, I didn't have much of a chance to see the game. But there's two things that I would like to highlight. One thing is that huge hug that Luis Moriel gave to Red after scoring that penalty kick. Sought him out. He went straight to him, didn't he? Exactly. You have to feel that something very right is going on in that locker room. Like, they really needed that coaching change. So, I... I think that that's very key in seeing the results and the turnaround that Colombia has been showing and will continue to show as long as Rueda is ahead of that team, right? And honestly, the second point is, look, I I like Scaloni for time for a period of times, right? Like the new generation of players coming in. I'm a huge fan of Romero. I cannot say it enough. I can say it everything I had the chance to say it. So I like Scaloni for times, but it's starting to get uh, worrisome or concerning. The fact that Argentina cannot really hold a result, right? That that's very important. Not just in qualifiers, but short tournaments are coming in, like coming soon, right? And the short in short tournaments, holding results are it's key, right? So that should be very worrisome. And in, in this case, for the Colombia turnaround in the game, like you have to give a huge round of applause to that to Ospina, right? Ospina held the game. And uh, a reach for Colombia to come back. So I think it's very fair to mention him in this conversation. Other than that, I think that we have said a lot over here. <laughs> yeah, like you said, Javier, Spina, I think, pretty much won that point for Colombia, keeping them within a goal so that all they needed was one moment that they could pounce on it, and Borja did it 
for Colombia to get them that point. But a couple of saves on Messi. Free kicks, a couple of saves from the run of play. One where you went down and put out a really strong left arm to, to keep out a shot. Big tip of the cap to him. For more perspective on Colombia, let's bring in our Colombian football expert, Simon Edwards, who's going to give you his thoughts on the match. Why, thank you, Austin. Here I am in the, in the future. Uh, the listeners passed. You, you won't believe what's happened since you recorded yesterday. Um, but you'll find out by the time you hear me speaking. Anyway, uh, talk about Colombia, Argentina. I think for me, the most interesting thing or one of the most important factors in this performance from Colombia was still, I think they're still vulnerable. But the positive news is I think they, they hung in there um, and they could build and build a bit of momentum as well. So look, I think the goals they conceded early, Argentina were impressive on the front foot, direct, assertive, uh, very clean and clinical and claro in their, in their movement of the ball. Um, quite vertical, but, but keeping it on the ground, playing sharp passes. That for me was impressive. Um, Colombia came out with, again, quite a, you know, three defensive midfielders. <laughs> Takes me back to the 2018 World Cup, but I won't go there. It will take out, it will take too long to go over all of my thoughts on that game. Um, but again, perhaps a little bit too, a bit too cautious, or at least perhaps drawing Argentina to them at the beginning. But Argentina very impressive, and, Ar- and Colombia, again, looking very nervous to begin with. I think. A positive is that they came back into the game and and kind of built that momentum and hung in there. And as they brought in more attacking players, they retained that defensive shape. Hopefully that gives them confidence to to trust the players they have to be able to hold things together without bringing extra defensive midfielders in or adding numbers to the midfield and taking away from the attack. Because once they kind of felt they had nothing to lose, then they definitely improved. I also think that Wilma Barrios probably... Um, improved the side in the second half and deserves to be a starter. I think he's very good. Cuellar has done well as well. You know, he can definitely be a useful tool for Colombia. But I think Wilma Barrios was part of the reason they were able to commit further players forward and still maintain that structure and that, that solidity in defence. Argentina as well. I think, I think Argentina tried to be very cute and very smart in how they managed the game. You know, obviously, Colombians were losing, pulling their hair out with, with some of the diving and the, the, the fouling and the frustration. Colombia, you know, had a few clumsy tackles in the first half, but some of the time wasting was, was amazing from Argentina. Uh, but I didn't think they had to do that. I think they could have just taken it to Colombia and they could have had a, an Ecuador 6-0, honestly, if they kept the pressure up on Colombia, because I think Colombia are still very vulnerable. Anyway, that said, um, the positive side, Cuadrado was immense. Ospina was it was great. Um, I think there's definitely some renewed confidence, and I think Javi pointed out that uh, the the support that Rueda has. I mean, Rueda is just a nice guy. He's a Colombian. He's worked with a lot of these players in the past. He's achieved great things with Atlético Nacional. So while I don't think he's the most innovative or creative or philosophical, strategic manager in the world, I think he's a good manager who is well liked and respected. Uh, and I think that's what Colombia need right now. Get their best players uh, feeling comfortable, feeling happy, uh, and see what we can achieve over the next uh, the next year and a half. Because we have the Copa America coming up, and then the World Cup at the end of the year. So it'll be interesting to see. So I think Colombia still vulnerable, not quite all firing, but a huge, huge result to uh, give confidence to the team, 
and renew some enthusiasm. Obviously, the scenes outside the stadium, protests, fighting with police, very assertive police presence, um, which, you know, of course is at the forefront of Colombians' minds. But I think that kind of result uh, allows Colombians to kind of distance the national team from some of these issues and, and give a bit of a respite. I think there are a lot of people looking at the protests thinking, you know, we should have been playing football, but those same people <laughs> couldn't resist uh, screaming out their windows at, at full time and, and, and enjoying the results. So I think it was an important result uh, to renew confidence in the team and also give more positive feelings back in Colombia around Colombian football. And I think people, whether they are willing to openly say this or not, are now looking forward to the Copa America with all of the complications and all of the problems outside. And, and perhaps perhaps there are bigger issues at play. Of course, there are bigger issues at play right now in Colombia. But I think the Colombian national team uh, is once again a source of distraction and relief and positivity. Um, so that's a positive. So lots and lots of work still to be done. A team that could very easily collapse and get absolutely destroyed but also a team that's shown some toughness and there's positive signs. Muriel had a, an important impact coming on. Um, it's interesting to see some of the squad players like Borja, who perhaps we wouldn't expect to be playing an important role, becoming more involved. And, you know, he could have had a penalty as well, maybe. You know, he could have had another one. But, um, yeah, so I think uh, a decent result all round for everybody. But I think Argentina are looking very promising. Romero and uh, Martinez great and they solve Argentina's biggest problem as well which is I think huge for them I think as well as all of the you know promising attacking signs for Argentina sorting out that centre-back and goalkeeper situation is huge now they just need to get rid of Otamendi and they'll be they'll be doing great all right I'll send everybody back to the past to listen to the team continue thanks for the invitation and I'll see you guys again next week Thanks for that, Simon. Moving on, I think probably the most surprising result of this week's World Cup qualifiers of this match day six, Peru, 2-1 winners against Ecuador in Quito, a result that Peru absolutely had to have. Christian Cueva and Luis Advincula getting both of the goals for them in the second half. Gonzalo Plata pulled one back for Ecuador late, but they could not find a second. And once again, it looks as though a hot start for Ecuador in World Cup qualifying has petered out a little bit. They sit third in the table on nine points by virtue of nobody doing anything else over this match day. Tom, I want to start with you before we get to Javier's perspective on Ecuador. Quickly on Peru, this was a result that it felt like they had to have. They were bottom of the table, one point, difficult match away at altitude in Quito. And I think Ricardo Gareca gets a lot of credit for this because he made what could have perhaps been seen as a controversial decision uh, to start Gianluca Lapadula over the Peruvian talisman veteran Paulo Guerrero. But he got it right. Lapadula had put in a workmanlike shift up top, a big role in both of the goals, and Peru get three points. Yeah, I don't think it's exaggerating to say that this was make or break for Gareca. I think if they'd lost this game, we could see Peru really considering making a change at managerial level because you know they this was their first win they they were looking like they were getting adrift and and now especially with other results they're you know back in the the fight I think there's still a long way to go for them but yeah as you said he made a some big calls um, and Lapadula was someone who really really impressed me two assists and was just yeah tireless especially 
considering he's probably not had loads of experience up at altitude as well so i thought i said this in the first half tom i saw him running for the first 15 minutes and i was like oh man there's no way he can keep this up he's never played at altitude in his life he's gonna die and it kind of looked like he did but he had enough left in the tank to make a huge difference on both goals so i think a massive performance from him and i thought quavo was good in the midfield as well the new iron lung of Peruvian football there. Um, and yeah, Quaver really showed up. I think when he's on his game, then P- Peru look a completely different proposition. And Renato Tapia has been someone who's been playing very well at club level and and is, again, one of the players with the with the higher uh, levels in this team. And, and I think generally, you know, you're, you're seeing a few new incorporations in this Peru uh, side, trying to bring the average age down a little bit. Lopez at left back. Sergio Pena coming in wasn't maybe his best game, but he's been good for Emin this season. A couple of the lads from Melgar as well coming in. So I think it was certainly um, a good performance, seizing on some, maybe some poor defence. I mean, I was, but for both goals, it was kind of surprising to suddenly see a two-on-one or a, or a one-on-one situation at almost out of nothing but you know they they took their chances and um and well Ecuador's now got some serious questions I mean yes they that they fell foul of um of VAR um but um and maybe there's a bit of bad luck there as well but I'm I'm fascinated to see what as uh, Javier thinks of of Ecuador and and where it's all all going wrong, are they are they destined to to drop off a cliff again, like they did in the last qualifiers, or is this just a little bit of a blip? So honestly, before I move into deeper detail, I like I agree with you, Tom. Like we have to highlight Peru, right? Um, extremely well deserved victory, right? Like that's the the big picture assessment, right? Now, in regards of Ecuador, um, we have seen lots of faces for Ecuador. Um, I'm hoping that Alfaro figures it out. Uh, right now, it's, it's, it's hard to, to assess Alfaro with the peaks and valleys that this team has had. Good shows, bad shows, uh, inconsistency in individual players. Like this, for example, some players that were great for the first match day with Alfaro were terrible in these games so i'm hoping that this is not the same process that we had last qualifier my god i really hope it is not um but honestly i don't feel as confident as before to say that it isn't right um but okay let's start with the game now Ecuador started with a 4-4-2 and having making some changes from the Brazil game, right? Obviously, right? So we had the addition of Pedro Perlas on the right. Moises Caicedo finally came back, which we thought it was good news. Turns out it wasn't. But yeah, so with a 4-4-2, a very flat 4-4-2 with Perlasa offering the width on the right side, solid two lines of four, two strikers up front, which, like I said at the beginning, it brought back some nostalgic feelings of what Ecuador used to be playing in Quito, right, in the altitude, right? Those glorious teams that play 4-4-2 really fast to the sides and crossing in to two strikers, right? So we felt that that might have been coming in. It turns out it didn't. (laughs) Anyways, 
the build-up was a little more interesting, right? So like I said, Perlasak was offering the width on the right side, so he was moving all the way up as a winger, right? Which means that Mena had to drop back to progress the ball, which left a huge hole on the right side, right? Now, Ecuador once was able to progress the ball into deep possession, they presented a very flawed and ineffective 3-3-4 with fullbacks Pervis and Perlasa offering width. Now, Pervis did shift with Caravali a little bit, which showed a lot of his tactical flexibility. It was very nice to see. Um, and now, that width was supposed to be used for the two strikers in the middle, Jordi Caicedo and Strada, right? I'll go into little detail later on about how that did not happen. Right? The three midfielders behind them were Mena, Caravali, and Moises. Like I said, Caravali shifting with Pervis in the inner channels. right? And in the back, there were Arboleda, Mendes, and Arriaga. Right? So in deep possession, structurally and tactically, the system had, uh, the structural formation had sense. Right? Sorry, made sense. The problem is that they didn't use it properly. Right? Now, Peru, on the other hand, formed a very conservative setup in which they held back most of the team with a very active Tapia in front of defense, right? Like you said, Tom, I'm a huge fan of Renato Tapia, right? Uh, I do watch uh, a lot of European leagues besides uh, South American football, so I enjoy watching him play for Santa Vigo. He's fantastic, right? And he has had a great year, right? Now, they also had Cueva, his magic on the left side was fantastic. The strength of Carrillo on the right side, and La Padula in front, and like you mentioned, Austin, right? La Padula had what I like to call a statement game. He's practically saying, you know what? Give me the time. Give me the playing time. I might make you miss Paolo Guerrero less than you think, right? Because he played an statement game. Now, Peru had two attacks early in the, in the, in the first half out of counterattacks, right? Some showing some prime creation with low numbers in the group, right? Because Peru had a lot of opportunities to create dangerous chances with low numbers. But all, all, like honestly, Ecuador was defending with low numbers as well, right? So it was like a match of like play, of players, of sorry, of teams with less players than usual, right? It was interesting to see. Now, on Ecuador's side, Mendes was excellent, right? So like I said, Perlaza, Pedro Pablo Perlaza as a right back was playing all the way up right? And he was very slow to come back when he actually came back. So Jackson Mendes had to cover at least three times Perlaza's space in the back, right? So his transition defense was excellent. He was correcting mistakes from other players, right? And then he offered some great diagonal long passes, which honestly, a width team, right, that has players on the, on the width, has to be using because when you switch sides, you're creating 1v1s on the weak side of the ball, right? So that actually creates chaos, which at the end should allow you to use your two strikers up front, right? Now, even though Mendez was great, Moises Caicedo, right? A fan favorite for the World Football Index. Um, it's a shame that Adam is not here to probably back me up in the fact that he had a very bad game, right? He showed nothing of the reasons we had come to love about him, right? No quick touches to ease the flow of the progression of the ball. No smart movement to force opponents out of position. No long dribbles that carry the team forward. No great defensive transitions either. 
And then you have to add a really, really dumb yellow card on the 27th minute, right? He showed every little of his young age in this game, right? It looked like the lack of playing time in England really, really hurt him, right? Now, it was interesting to see how Peru had an easier time breaking down Ecuador in low numbers than Ecuador breaking down Peru in high numbers, right? That was something that you don't see very often. Now, the most pressing issue of Ecuador in the first half is that if you were going to play two strikers, like uh, like Jordi Caicedo and Estrada, in a 4-4-2 setup, you should have used the width and crossed into them like repeatedly, not attempting what they did, which was a very inefficient and evidently not working gameplay through the middle, right? Which was also hurt because Mena had to drop back to ease the progression of the ball, right? And with my, Moises Caicedo having the lousy game that he had, there was no point in going through the middle, right? And again, in this point, I have to highlight Peru's defensive work because they did cover the wide channels very well. Now, the good sign from Alfaro is that, like I said in the last pod, he take too long to he took too long to make the stops against Brazil. In this game, he did not take too long, right? He made three subs, right, which is which is not a great sign of what we saw that multiple times this window, Javier, from multiple teams. The triple halftime change, which I guess you can do when you have like nine substitutions to make, but it's not exactly the biggest <laughs> ringing endorsement of how you started the match, is it? Exactly. And like I said a few, like, woof, like two pots ago, right? When you do that, you're kind of pointing fingers, and that's a difficult game to play, right? Uh, now, unfortunately, here, even though Alfaro did the right thing to make in the subs, right? In making those subs, he actually lost the game. And this is why, right? So he stopped in Plata, uh, Angelo Preciado, and Christian Novo. He stopped out Perlaza because he had an awful game. He set up Jordi Caicedo, which was completely as absent, but most of it, it wasn't his fault, right? And finally, Jason Mendes. By losing Mendes, he lost his cover he had to players pushing up that increased with the need of getting a result. So if you imagine that in the first half, Mendes had to be active covering up people pushing up and leaving spaces behind, right? Imagine what it had in the second half when the desperation increased, right? And like I said, the play through the middle was very ineffective, which at the end forced the, the center backs to push up to ease those passive patterns and gameplay, right? So that's why you kept listening to Alfaro, to those that can actually, like, were able to watch the game with the stadium, the stadium sound, right? Alfaro was constantly screaming to Arbolea and to Arreaga, attack the space, right? Because the passes were not clear. So they have to force Peruvian players to cover them so you can create that space to pass the players in, right? So like I tell like most of my youth players, right? Like if you are not forced to make the pass, don't make the pass. Force your opponent to come to you to create more space for set pass, right? And Alfaro was insisting on that. Now, no other play was a better example of losing your defending cornerstone than the first Peruvian goal. That was probably 50% uh, mistakes and 50% naiveness, right? It's actually the, four, the worst play, defensive play that I have seen live outside of beer leagues. I hope that's not too harsh, but it was awful, right? Basically, while attacking on a corner, right, in the second ball, Noboa lost the ball, and Peru found Ecuador in a terrible position, right, and was able to counterattack in a 2v, 2v1 play, right, with a Jotun pass 
deep to La Padula was, was fantastic. Now, there are some easy or difficult ways to prevent that, right? The easiest is the plus, is the plus one rule, right? That means that you have in defense the number of players that you're defending plus one, right? Besides this one, there's all, several defensive structures for preventive defensive position, right? I always explain my teams that in corners, right, scoring corners is a desperate move, right? So if you're not in desperate need of a goal, it makes no sense to risk a very high chance of scoring like a counterattack in superior numbers for a corner that you score one out of what, 50, 55 corners, right? It really made no sense. So very well from Peru. Right, very well. Uh, it was just a show of how La Padula exploited spaces and was very intelligent of how to do it and assisted the goal for Christian Cueva. Now, this is the climax of the Peruvian strength in low numbers. La Padula, like I said, was excellent in the in the in combining the two man game and did everything perfect to leave Cueva in position to score. Right. Honestly, the work of Tapia, Carrillo, Cueva, La Padula was outstanding throughout the game, right? I, I hope that I am being fair with how much I'm highlighting their performance, right? Now, after the goal, Alfaro brought in Fidel and Quito Diaz. Quito Diaz, which was something that most of the Ecuadorians were demanding for, right? For Angelito Mena and Jose Caravalli. Quito, Quito Diaz was great during his time on the field, right? The man in the ball, doing some great combination play and being fearless at attempting things. Honestly, Diaz is the kind of player that sometimes you see him play and you're like, what are you doing? And then it turns out that his risk paid off, right? So Diaz was interesting to see, right? Him and Gonzalito Plata were the little positive Ecuadorian had going forward. Now, in the 86th minute, showed the second time Ecuador was caught with low numbers and was another example of how much Mendes was missed. When Novoa failed to support the cover in defense for Pervez Estupeñan and La Padula had a great pass for Advincula that destroyed Dominguez with a strong shot that went between his legs. Now, La Padula didn't have to do much. It was a one-two combination play between Advincula and La Padula. But unfortunately, Cristian Novoa took forever to cover the space that Ecuador's defense had to leave uh, by covering La Padula on the, on the left side, right? It was very unfortunate to see how much Novoa has regressed physically because that space was supposed to be his. Now, in this 92nd minute, Platita showed his magic with a one to play with Estrada that ended up in a goal that gave Ecuador some illusions of optimism. But the Peru defense by then was rock solid and let nothing else go. Honestly, it was Plata being Plata. Now, I do want to say one thing, right? The highest point of the game is the, the group of Carrillo, Cueva, Tapia, La Padula, and at some point, Yotun, right? But especially La Padula was amazing. I still think that it was a highlight, a, sta a statement game for him. Now, on Equor, I want to say Mendes because it showed how much we really miss him, right? Diaz and Plata deserve some recognition. But honestly, there's not much to say about Ecuador and a lot to say about Peru. Now, what is really sad to say is that probably the lowest point of the game is Alfaro, right? Now, honestly, success is relative, right? It all depends on the expectations that you have created. And Alfaro, in some way, is a victim of his own success. And today is the second game in a row in which he counts for the lowest point for his initial setup but mo and mostly for solving Mendes out, right? 
Now, finally, in the last podcast, I sorry, in the last podcast, I said that the keys for Ecuador to qualify were a strength in altitude of Quito and a strong defensive foundation. We failed at both these two match days. Javier, so my question for you now, and this is kind of a general question that I think is relevant to a lot of these teams, is what do you want to see from Ecuador at this Copa America? I think this is a very interesting Copa America. Obviously, you know, you could do a whole series of podcasts around all of the, the issues and questions around it. But as, from a footballing perspective, how is this tournament viewed? Is this an opportunity to experiment? Do you want to see momentum? Do you want, you know, what do you want to see from Ecuador at the Copa America? And how do you think that could maybe help them going forward into September, October, November, January, March, when these qualifiers, you know, end up wrapping up? Okay. Honestly, these qualifiers showed one thing, is that the seasons, because of the pandemic, has been very inconsistent mm -hmm. and very tight, right, in about dates and everything. So what I would like the Copa America to be used is two things. A, give the players that need a break a break. Yep. Right, because every team that has European presence and a non-local foundation of for their teams are struggling because of that. Right, they end up lowering the rhythm at the end. Right, the, the players are, not, are very inconsistent and not showing what they showed throughout the season. Right, and point number two is give the players that need time playing time. Right, Angelo Preciado, Moises Caicedo, or Angel Men are players that their season ended up either too early or did not enjoy a lot of playing time recently, right? And we need them at their best to perform, right? So use the Copa America, give them playing time, right? And get them back into rhythm. Finally, Alfaro needs to make a decision, right? Like at the end, I do enjoy tactical flexibility. I do, I do enjoy plan A, plan B, plan C, reactions, different plans, I really do. But you have to start from the essence of what, what your plan A is and what you want to do, right? I do understand what it, that with inconsistent players, that's a very difficult task. But the Copa America should be used to determine what Alfaro's plan is with the national team and work towards that with the new generation of players that you have and the talent that you need to get back into red. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what Uh, Javier said there about um, Alfaro being a, a victim of his own success, really, because he's from having watched him in his club career in in Argentina. A lot of the time, he was he was good when his side was the underdog who could stay compact and then hit on the counter attack. Whereas I think potentially what we've seen from these games is um, as Javier has brilliantly broken down there on on both these podcasts is the fact that. Maybe not so much um, against uh, Brazil, but certainly against Peru at home, the impetus is on Ecuador to be making those chances. And I think when he is faced with being the protagonist, he doesn't always get it completely right. And and I think that's where it's going to be so fascinating to see if he can um, maintain, well, improve that home form so that they become the bankers because they're going to be games where Ecuador will be expected to take the game to opposition. And and maybe now that they've had this good start, sides are a bit more wary of them and they're not going to give them the space that maybe they, that they would usually. So I think 
the whole idea of how the shifting context of how qualifications going is 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 really interesting and and um, yeah perhaps this uh, Copper America can be a a bit of a reset for them a bit of experimentation and, and maybe go back to basics in in many ways. And Tom, do you see this Copa America as that opportunity for maybe a lot of squads here? You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of pressure on many teams going into this tournament. Um, there's a lot of group stage games that probably won't have that much meaning, you know, given the format of this tournament, 10 teams start, eight teams advance. It's kind of an opportunity for an extended training camp with, you know, inverted commas, friendlies kicked in that could be beneficial to a lot of teams from a footballing perspective. Oh, definitely. hundred percent when it comes to the format, that group stage, I think there's going to be plenty of tinkering from, from a lot of different coaches as they try a few different ideas that maybe can be more utilized in the knockout stages and then going on to the world cup qualifiers as well. Um, it's going to be really fascinating. I think there's some sides who are probably going to, not necessarily write off the, the Copper America, but, you know, you look at Uruguay, for example, I think the sooner the Copper America can be over for them, the, the happier they'll be because I think for them now, they've got no expectations on that tournament and it's all going to be focused towards qualifying for Qatar. Um, whereas Argentina, you think, you know, they could probably tweak a few of the, you know, the issues they've got, give a bit more playing time to the some of these newer players coming into the squad and, and they might, see it as a as a potential opportunity um to to get Messi that elusive title with um the national team so it i think it's it's going to be definite the group stage i think we're going to see a lot of experimentation but then it might get um especially if if there are tired players i think the 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 knockout stages are going to be very tight low low intensity low energy cautious affairs and you know you can't really look past brazil but i think um certainly for the likes of ecuador the likes of peru um chile to, to an extent i think they're they're almost free hits um and could be really really important testing grounds for um for this you know the the remainder of these qualifiers so i think yeah as you rightly say it's a, it's a really great question in terms of not just looking at it um, on its own as a, as a standalone tournament, but taking it in the context of qualifiers and and the the very limited times uh, scale that we've got to finish all of these now, it's um it's almost um, takes on an extra dimension. So yeah, that's that side of things is going to be really really intri- intriguing. Let's move back to the action we saw on the pitch last night, and I think another surprising result, certainly a surprising result. A 1-1 draw between Chile and Bolivia in Santiago. This game played out, I think, exactly like you would have expected, except the result wasn't what you would have expected. Chile dominated the ball. They dominated possession. They dominated the chances. They created a lot. But they only come away with a 1-1 draw. Eric Pulgar getting the goal for Chile with 70 minutes played kind of felt like, okay, they got the goal. They're going to be all right now. They had had the lion's share of the ball. They had had all of the chances. Um, Sagredo with a goal line clearance for Bolivia. Carlos Lampe with a couple of saves. Chile hit the woodwork twice, I think, in the first half an hour. They were all over Bolivia, but they just couldn't force it across the line. Finally, they did, and they looked to be on their way to a hard-fought but well-earned three points. And then disaster struck for the Chileans. A penalty given away by Maripan for the second straight game. This time for a 
handball that was a questionable decision i think it's fair to say at best and that man the leading scorer in south american world cup qualifiers marcelo martins moreno puts his penalty into the top corner and bolivia rescue a 1-1 draw and have now managed to match their best ever away record in South American World Cup qualifiers since the switch to this everyone plays everyone format ahead of the 1998 World Cup with two points away from home. They picked up a point in their last match against Paraguay, a 2-2 draw, and now a 1-1 draw here. Tom, this is a disappointing result for Chile. There's no doubt about that. This is two points dropped. But can you really be that upset with the performance yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because on one hand, it's a huge chance for Chile to, to sort of keep pace or even overtake some of the competitors for what I think is going to be a really, really tight battle for those certainly third, fourth, fifth uh, places in, in the in the group stage. And, and you've got to be looking at a home game against Bolivia, regardless of how you get it done you just have to get those three points so um the fact that they played well enough will be i think of little comfort really because you know yes playing wells you know there's positives to take out of it but realistically the, the three points is the the most important thing and, and chile are, are sort of one of those sides that yes they can frustrate and and play well in 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 patches against some of the bigger nations um but then they produce these kind of uh, performances where they're they're not quite as incisive as, as they once were and and i think this will be you know a really really frustrating performance they look back on um potentially as as decisive and i think that's where bolivia yes they're they're showing that they they're not just there to make up the numbers and if they can capitalize on the home form and grab these occasional points away they they might not actually be too far adrift of, of the competition but i think where they may come in is is sort of kingmakers for those who do qualify so i think this is um yeah it can't be stressed enough how much of a uh, a missed opportunity for chile this is um but yeah bolivia very very impressive. I mean, it's, it's very rare that they go two games unbeaten. And and yeah, that, that man, Triple M, um, with, with yet another goal. It's I, I remember when I was first getting into South American football, he was, I think he was top scorer in the Libertadores with Cruzeiro um, the first time I was in South South America. And I'd, I kind of always had a soft spot for him. So th- the fact that he's still doing it is, uh, is pretty, pretty impressive. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, tightening this whole whole group up again so um it's uh it shows that you've got to be you've got to be at it there's no gimmies in in this competition and that's what makes it one of the most fascinating certainly qualifiers in, in the world but just tournaments in general javier we talked about this a bit with argentina earlier missed opportunities to finish off some results and chile are maybe starting to write that same sort of story two points dropped here after the 80th minute Of course, Uruguay got a late, late winner in a match earlier on in qualifiers. Chile dropped points from a winning position against Colombia. You can't do this too often before you're stuck in a situation where you're looking back and saying what could have been. There's still time to turn it around, but there's definitely a lot of pressure on Chile now, isn't there, Javier? And honestly, it's a very bad 
uh, qualifiers to be that uh, to have that issue of, be, of being unable to close down a game, right? At this point, after the match day, right, the last uh, place team, Peru, has four points, whereas the fourth team in the qualifiers, which is Uruguay, has eight. That's a four-point difference. So margins are going to matter, right, when uh, when the time's up. So, yeah, it, it's concerning, right? And honestly, I'm not surprised to see Marcelo Moreno Martins being a part of the highlights of a game, right? He's always there. And there's one thing to highlight about this Bolivia team, right? Uh, it's probably one of the best shows that we have seen from Bolivia in qualifiers. But it's also very important to mention why. And I think that a big part of that uh, positive image that we have of Bolivia right now is that it's one of the few teams that have a very strong local foundation for the national team, right? Whereas most of the teams have, uh, really export their players that come from different countries of the world, right? Bolivia play, has a very strong local foundation. And I think that that's a big part of why they're doing so well. And generally that's a detriment to them because let's be honest, the level of the Bolivian league is not what it is at the rest of the continent. But as you said, Javier, you know, in a time when everybody around the world is playing so much football, these are players who are relatively fresh. They're playing a system they're well in, they're well, you know, versed in. And Tom, after what was a disastrous start to qualification for Bolivia, they lost their first two home matches. They obviously weren't at the races away to Brazil. They pick up a point away to Paraguay. They beat Venezuela at home, which is obviously three points they have to have. And a point here, they're probably not making the World Cup, but it's not a stretch to say that they can be, you know, hanging around and playing matches that matter deep into this qualification cycle. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Like, like, like I said, I think it's it, they're going to be a side that, could have a big impact on maybe other teams success or failure and given the fact that we're seeing you know a lot of these maybe more established sides um you know chile uruguay and um, peru not necessarily being full of goals um you know i think they've they've got that potential to to, to sort of take advantage of this current weakness in in a lot of the a lot of the nations and um and they're always going to be they're always going to be tricky they've got some guys who are you know who are playing regularly at libertadores level um you know vac is a, an interesting young player justiniano becherano th- these are these are good you know players at, at this level that are they're going to scrap and fight and um and yeah they, they've been around the block so um it's going to be interesting i mean who knows? Let's let's not write them write them off, especially when they've got Boca Legend uh, Lampe and goal. And they have the altitude still. It's not La Paz hasn't moved, and they're going to keep playing there. Um, so yeah, like you said, look, it would be a massive, massive shock if Bolivia even qualified for the playoff. Man, imagine a playoff with Bolivia against a team from another confederation that had to come play <laughs> at La Paz. Oh, oh, one can dream. One Amazing. can dream. <laughs> All right, let's move on to a nil-nil draw between Venezuela and Uruguay that keeps both teams pretty much where they were uh, in the table coming into this match day. Venezuela near the bottom with four points. Uruguay still in the top four with eight points, but a pair of nil-nil draws this window. Tom, not the results that Uruguay were looking for, and I think the performance here certainly leaves some questions to be asked. They looked like they were 1-0 down. Josef Martinez, the Atlanta United striker, 
did really well to fight off a pair of defenders and finish. But in bringing the ball down, he used his arm and VAR chopped that off, probably rightly so. But other than a couple of, of snatch chances from Suarez, yes, there were a couple of good saves from Gratarol in goal for Venezuela. These two performances from Uruguay, Tom, I think have put them in a precarious, if not dangerous situation, it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I think if you just look at the table on its own, you you kind of think, oh, you know, what's what's all the worry about? But the mood has really soured um, in Uruguay with these these performances. It's three goals without three games without a goal now, rather, um, and I believe it was the from the last two games. It was the one of the first times in their history that they've ever gone two qualifiers without um, a, a home goal. So that kind of shows what a sort of strange run they're on at the moment. And and again, I think we need to point out that not only would Uruguay expect to be beating Venezuela, albeit you know, a much improved Venezuela over the last few years, but this was like a Venezuela B team almost. There's no Rondon, no Machis, no Soteldo, no Yangel Herrera, uh, Cordova, Mauricio, Osorio, Angel, all missing for Venezuela. So this was a, a great opportunity for Uruguay to to get out of the funk they're in at the moment and um, and you know capitalize on on some of the other results and and, and really strengthen their uh, qualification. But as any Uruguayan fan will tell you, they, they don't like to do it the, the easy way. That, that if they can find a way to finish fifth in this group, then they probably will do. But um, yeah, just right from the start, the the lineup um, again with Cáceres at left back. Um, really baffling decision when they've they've got quite a few good options there. Vina being the most obvious one, and I think when when he came on, they immediately looked a lot better. He had a really big chance late on um, that could have won the game there. Um, but also, you know, a lot of interesting, probably maybe interesting is not the right word, but a lot of confusing decisions. Vecino is is a good player, but he's been out for a lot of this season, and he's he's not been great lately for for Uruguay either. Um, I mean, there's questions over Godin and to a lesser extent Jimenez. And as you saw the way they both got attracted to Josef Martinez there for for that goal that was ruled out, you know, they they weren't, they're not in their usual strong sense. And I think there's a lot of calls for Barcelona's Ronaldo Raujo and Sebastian Coates, who's been instrumental in sporting Lisbon's title. Um, you know, there's there's calls for them to come in. So that kind of settled centre back pairing is is got a few questions around it. Um and the midfield, it just again, for the second game in a row, they just seem to lack a sort of an an idea of, you know, a collective idea of of how to connect attack and, and defense. Suarez was really isolated. Yes, having no Cavani probably contributed to that as well but the midfield right now is just is really lacking rhythm it's not pressing well with without the ball when when they are on the ball they just seem too hurried and and they're sort of just slinging long aimless balls forward um you know Valverde is a player that I absolutely love but he was kind of shoveled out to the left a little bit um and you know, the experiment of Facundo Torres, who made such a great impact in the last game, him being out on the right really didn't work out at all um, in this game. So um, potentially he's someone who should just be introduced slowly into this into this national team setup. And, and I think the 
the introduction of Nico de la Cruz was the the only kind of positive that you could really take from the from this. As soon as he came on, he gave them that um, change of pace, that change of rhythm. Um, he had, had some very good set piece deliveries, which brought some of their best chances. Um, and, and I think I saw a stat that he made more key chances. Um, I think he made three of them. Um, in his 21 minutes than any other player for Uruguay had done over the last two games, which just shows you the lack of creativity they've, they've got at the moment as uh, as well. So a lot of um, unrest among Uruguayan fans, you know, they're not necessarily as the, the most demanding uh, as you would get in maybe Argentina and, and Brazil, but, and they've got plenty of respect for Tavares and everything that he's done for Uruguayan football. But I think everyone's sort of, questioning this style of football these strange um, decisions this faith with some of these that the older guard that have maybe need to be phased out particularly Casades is, is the obvious example there um, and because it's not like they're they're getting ideas above their station they generally do have the players now and the depth of talent young players coming through that that are capable of of doing more than this so well yes, i look at a player tom like brian ocampo who didn't even see the pitch in this game he's been on flying form for nacional in the libertadores you know it's like come on give him a chance 15 minutes in this game you know that's all you needed was was just a goal it's odd to me to see him languishing on the bench without any playing time here yeah, exactly. Someone like that would have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, whether or not, you know, you think he's the best player in the squad, in terms of form, there's there's very few outside of um, Itboy in South America right now who, who are in better form than him. And he can give you that create creativity. He can give you that width that they're, they're not really going to get from their, their fullbacks that they've currently got in there at the moment. And yeah, it just seemed like, you know, give it a go, try it on try something a bit, little bit different. I mean, even players who, who aren't even in the squad, like Mauro, Mauro Arambari, absolutely fantastic in Spain this year. Talk of, you know, some of the biggest clubs in Europe going after him. And you kind of think, yeah, come on, he's he's got a lot more to offer than uh, Vecino, for example, who's yeah, just barely, barely featured, as, as to, to my knowledge. So I think given, I mean, just looking at Uruguay on their own, it was a poor performance, but doubly so when, when you look at, the, the the Venezuela side that they were up against. I mean, yes, Joseph Martinez, Savarino was very good as well, I think. But um, realistically, it's it, you know it's it's a result that they they could have got something out of. Um, and and also, I think you know these last games they're very, they're very lucky not to be sort of further adrift or of the the quali- qualification. Um, and I think as I sort of mentioned earlier when we briefly touched on the copper america the the mood is 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 definitely very negative among fans and and they just kind of want to get that over and over and done with because they can't see anything good coming from it so there's some real questions you know is it wise to switch managers in in the middle of this this uh, qualification campaign when they're still you know right in the running who knows will towers turn it around again there's so many questions and everything's up in the air. Um, so I think out of all the the nations, I think Uruguay are probably one of the ones that are not in crisis, but there's there's definitely uh, a feeling, an unsettled feeling there that that perhaps um, 
might come as a bit of a surprise to to outlookers uh, or, or onlookers from the outside, rather. Javier, anything you'd like to add from that one? <laughs> I think that Tom covered most of everything, right? I actually ha- was reading my notes. I was like, Tom, stop stealing my points. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <But> mate. <laughs> other than that, A, great shout out for Mauro Arambari. Like, like, I'm a huge fan of Jose Bordalas, which is Getafe's coach. And Arambari under Bordalas has been key and fantastic in the last few years of great success for Getafe. So I agree with your point. Now, since you already mentioned most of my points, I'm just going to highlight one thing. Sorry, two things. First, how great was Uruguay once Viña and, and Nicola Cruz came in, right? Viña offered width on the left side, pressure moved up, right? Nicola Cruz was fantastic, right? So that's what I want to see, right? Options, right? Resources, use your resources, right? We were talking about how to use the Copa America, right? Let's see some new faces. Let's see some new setups. Let's try some new things, right? Like part of the issue with Tavares and Uruguay is that when you have been so successful, quote unquote successful, uh, playing one style, right? When something new you try doesn't work immediately and right away, right? You subconsciously fall back and revert what to what has always worked, right? Not to go that far, right? Considering like Atletico Madrid has so many Uruguayans as well, right? To to Diego Simeone, that happens all the time, right? To try new things and subconsciously most of the games you go back to has, what has always worked. Tavares works on the, the same things. I would say that new faces, new players under a new setup in the Copa America will do them wonders, right? Like I, I will be very, uh, I will hesitate very much to replace Tavares. I don't know what the amount of pressure is right now for, for him under the press and the people and, and, and Uruguay. But, right, you, like I've always said, it's very easy to fire your coach. It's very hard to replace him with someone better most of the time. So unless you have someone better than El Maestro Tavares, I would hesitate and I would not jump uh, the gun on that opportunity. Well, let's wrap up these five matches with perhaps the most predictable result that we saw in a week that saw plenty of discussion and controversy and politics and everything that you could have imagined for the Brazilian national team uh, related to the Copa America, related to the political situation, the health situation, all of that in Brazil. It still ends with a comfortable 2-0 win for Brazil away in Asuncion against Paraguay. Their first win in Asuncion in quite some time, I believe since the 1980s. And it's a match day, Tom, that ends with Brazil atop the table. Six played, 6-1, six 18 points, six ahead of Argentina for second, and a full 10 ahead of Colombia in fifth, 11 ahead of Paraguay in sixth. There is one team that is the best in South America, Tom, and it is Brazil, and there's not much question about that. Yeah, I think that's one of the absolute guarantees you've got at the moment. You know, they're flying, although maybe flying's not exactly the right word, maybe more cruising because it is just, it just seems easy for them at the moment. Very Cheech-esque performances, no? From his Corinthians days. 2-0, you know, not necessarily going over and above what's necessarily having complete control of the game. Yes, they've probably come up against a side that really wasn't 
throwing too much um, at them. Um, and then they're certainly a tough side to, to break down, um, as, as we've seen from from plenty of the, the draws that they've managed to, to get so far. Um, but yeah, I think it was just get that early goal, wait and wait until you get that opportunity. And, and when they were pushing a little bit at the end there, just uh, Pakatar coming on to, to to get the winner. And, and again, just Cheech has got this nailed down and, and potentially the only thing that you could maybe say is, well, a, a worry if, if even that is, you know, these qualifiers are seemingly so easy for them that when they do come up against some top level European uh, quality, are they going to have had a sufficient challenge to to be ready for those those challenges when they when they do come? Because you don't get too many of those World Cup knockout games, uh, and if if they go ever so slightly wrong, then you know you can be brilliant in qualif- qualification as, as much as you want. It's uh, it's those sort of fine margins. So um, that's probably the only sort of question mark hanging over Brazil. But yeah, I think Cheech is unbeaten in in 18 games in, in qualifiers. And, and this was, well, it was just a, a guaranteed three points, I think straight away. And, and the one thing that I think really, really does separate Brazil from all these other teams that we've mentioned on the podcast is you just can't see them making those mistakes that will characterize the Argentina game, for example, um, or pretty much any, any of the other games that we've, we've talked about. They just, they never seem like they're going to give away a silly mistake. And, and with Neymar at the top of his game um, and just a whole array of attacking talent, you know, we saw a kind of 4-4-2 or a 4-2-4 almost with, with Firmino and Neymar up front and Jesus on the right, Richarlison on the left, um, Paqueta coming off the bench. It's just um, an embarrassment of riches really. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty, cut and dry not too much controversy um and and i think paraguay will will write this off as one that's not really going to um determine where what they do in the in this qualification and and brazil march on yeah tom i think you're spot on with paraguay this is anybody that picks up anything against brazil at any point in this qualification those will be very valuable points because i don't think those are going to be points that a lot of teams are going to be winning obviously Brazil have their home record, which is nearly flawless, uh, but they've been so good even away from home here. If you can even scoop a point against Brazil, that's a point up on just about everybody else because I can't envision this side dropping very many points throughout this qualification cycle, at least until they've locked up qualification. Um, you know, once you look, we'll, we'll see what the fixtures look like for them. Once they've locked up qualification, there could be some opportunities to rotate, particularly with the amount of matches that are played. There could be a chance to, to nick some points off of them then. But for as long as they're, quote-unquote, fighting for qualification, they're going to be very, very hard to beat. Javier, is there a more important player to any South American national team than Casemiro? Well, um, if we consider important in the concept of what North American sports are as the MVP, I would say no. The MVP is usually the best player from the best team or the most important player for the best team. So Casemiro, for sure. And honestly, the wounds are really fre- uh, a little fresh from his fantastic performance against Ecuador, but he's just great, right? Like how for how long has he been doing that? And it kind of hurts how 
even now it's so underappreciated and on in for Real Madrid, for Brazil, right? Most people like flair and magic and whatever, but successful teams do not work out without someone like Casemiro. He has to be highlighted. He is outstanding. I agree with him. And Tom, for Paraguay in this match, their game plan appeared to be long throws to Gustavo Gomez in the box, which like tip of the cap to you for, for trying that out there, Bariso, but that's probably not going to get it done. <laughs> yeah, no, I think um, as well as that, you know, uh, defense very well marshaled by Marquinhos and and screened by that by the brilliant Casemiro, you're going to have to come up with something a little bit different. Um, I mean, one player that I think has stood out to me for for these last couple of games is Omar Alderete. Um, I thought he was he was very good. Um, again, he had a, a rocket of a shot that was that was really well saved by by Edison that he didn't sort of see see coming. And, and I think he is a big positive going forward. And and yeah, they're they're solid. They're not scoring loads of goals. They're not giving up many goals. But um, I think yeah, as, as I said before, this is not going to define their their qualification. This is a free hit, and you know. They'll they'll go on and and see if they can nick some other points um, away against some of these out of sort teams. So, yeah, Brazil um, looking very good. I mean, one one player that I just thought I'd get your take on Austin is is Paqueta. I mean, he's he's been used in all kinds of positions for for Brazil, and clearly Cheech is is trying to find a role for him, and and maybe it's his versatility that's going to be useful. Um, but but kind of where do you see him fitting in to this Brazil side? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think because of that versatility, I think you could could see him kind of deployed a lot of different ways depending on matchups. You know, I think the sure thing in this Brazil squad is the back line is probably going to look like it looks here. Uh, Casemiro is going to be in a defensive midfield role. But as Javier said... Having Casemiro in that role, particularly in matches like this one, you know, against Paraguay, against teams that are going to sit back deep against Brazil and force them to try and break them down, you can afford to put Paqueta next to Casemiro and tell Paqueta, all right, you go and join with all of the attackers we have, you know, Richarlison, Gabriel Jesus, Roberto Firmino, uh, Neymar, Gabi, wh- whoever it may be that's playing up top. And Casemiro will just take care of the rest. Um, this match started with Fredge next to Casemiro, and I think Cheech kind of realized that that was maybe one too many midfielders that were better at defending and short passes kind of than anything else. So it's super interesting, and, and I think that will be a big question for Brazil, as you said, going into the World Cup. And it will be really interesting to see, you know, as we kind of take a big picture look ahead to the calendar. Uh, September and October of 2022 should be windows that are open for friendlies as teams kind of refine their World Cup plans. You have to think Brazil will have big eyes towards looking to try and line up Germany, France, Spain, you know, all of the best teams from Europe because they need that experience of playing against those teams because they're just not getting it um, playing here in, in South America so far. So as we wrap up this week's show, uh, just a quick kind of cursory overview glance of where the table stands. As we said, Brazil in first on 18 points. Argentina sits second with 12. Ecuador are in third with nine. Uruguay currently sit in the last direct qualification spot with eight points. Colombia are in the playoff spot also with eight points, a worse goal differential. Paraguay 
seven points are one behind the playoff spot with Colombia. Chile on six points from six played are two behind that playoff spot with Bolivia just a point behind them with five. Venezuela and Peru bring up the rear with four points each. But as we've mentioned, they're only four points off a playoff spot. And as we look ahead to what we think will be triple match days in September and October, that can all change very, very quickly. Uh, Javier, before we go, a chance for you to plug anything. A great fun, as always, to have you on the show. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate it. Nothing really uh, to plug, uh, but please, if you want some friendly discussions, please, you know where to find me on Twitter at ZAVXAV. I actually had a lot of uh, some interesting conversations about my analysis of Ecuador from the last pod. So keep them coming. It's always friendly. It's always fun. Thank you. And Tom, yourself? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at TomRub89. Um, did a podcast reviewing the Argentinian league for Golazo Argentino, so check that out. And I'll have a piece up on World Football Index looking at some of the, the young breakthrough players from uh, the Copa de la Liga as well. So uh, plenty of stuff going up there. And um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be much more to come. Did Pulgo Rodriguez make your breakthrough list, Tom? Or is he just outside the age cut? Yeah, I think he's he's just over. Uh, I think he's already well into legendary status to to make it there. But there there obviously was some Colon players in there. So um, yeah, check it out. I'm, I'll do one of these uh, these famous teasers of yours, Austin. I'm learning from the master. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. You can also follow Adam and Simon, the whole South American football show crew for all of the latest from us. Thank you so much to our listeners for choosing this podcast for all your South American football needs in English. To be frank, you don't have that many choices, but we're still always happy that you chose us. Be sure to follow the World Football Index on social media for all the latest. All that's left for me to say is thanks for listening. And goodbye.